This is Jason Holleran. I proudly served for 33 years, culminating as the Deputy Commandant at West Point. Put this on your calendar. World War II weekend inside Old Bethpage Village Restoration on Long Island. Scores of operational vintage armor in formation May 18th and 19th. Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman invites you to join him in saluting America's greatest generation and all those who have worn the uniform in defense of our freedoms. That's May 18th and 19th, presented by the Museum of American Armor. It's Sunday, and you know what that means. And this is the Dick Morris Show, presented by the Patriot Gold Group. Here's Dick Morris on 77 WABC. Welcome to the Dick Morris Show. This is Dick Morris with Doug DePere. Hey, Dick. We're sponsored by the Patriot Gold Group. And today is National Anthem Day or week or month. Or Isn't that great? Right? We found out yeah. from Rudy. So, so that's um, why we're doing the same so thing that's Rudy That's why we're playing it. But um, let me just give it a little bit of background on the National Anthem. The, in the War of 1812, the Americans, led by James Madison, who was the president, were totally unprepared for the war. It was ridiculous. It was absurd. We had an army of 10,000 men. And uh, the British took full advantage of it. And we thought we could conquer Canada. And Madison tried, and, and he was defeated. And then the British decided, okay, we're going to end this war and take Washington, conquer the capital city. And when you did that in Europe, the other side folded. And they attacked General George, Admiral George Cockburn, uh, attacked Washington, and uh, found it almost undefended. And he, they walked in almost unopposed, took the White House, burned it, uh, took Capitol Hill, and uh, basically destroyed the Capitol. Wow, that's amazing. The government was, uh, was very young then, so it was easy to destroy, but it was a total wipeout. Then uh, he got back in his ships and sailed north to Baltimore, which was the real objective. Washington had no strategic importance, just a psychological importance as our capital. Mm-hmm. And Cochrane advanced on on Baltimore, and uh, it looked like a very difficult fight to hold Baltimore. And the fort that was protecting Baltimore is called Fort McHenry. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Americans ho- hold up in there and determined to wait out a long British siege. Uh, and there were 45 British ships besieging it, uh, lobbing shells into it. And, uh, and they were able to get outside of the range of Fort McHenry's guns. Uh, so they could lob shells with impunity. And Francis Scott Key, who was a writer, was was on a boat in Baltimore Harbor overlooking the blockade. Hmm. And the issue was, would America, would the American forces survive the night? And all night of the ramparts they watched, uh, and the rockets, red, rockets red glare and the bombs bursting in air. And after the night, the star-spangled banner of the flag was still there. And uh, that gave rise to the poem. I'm getting chills the right national now. Anthem, and it became the national anthem after World War I um, and serves in that capacity today. That's a beautiful story, Dick yeah, Morris. thank you. A real historian. Now, um, history. Donald Trump is absolutely sweeping everything in front of him. 
that's right. Absolutely destroying everything in front of him. Obviously, he's sweeping away Nikki Haley, which is no big deal. <laughs> she should have walked away. She'll be out of the race on Wednesday. But, um, but it's, it's just incredible how well he, Trump is doing. But against Biden, he's doing well. Uh, he keeps gaining on Biden. The New York Times Siena poll has Trump ahead by five points, 48 to 43. And remember about all polls that he's going to crack up a lot of votes for Trump in New York and in California, but he can only carry those states once. It's just you don't have repeat electoral votes there. And, uh, <clears throat> and therefore, a five-point lead with the country, including California and New York in that sample, is a much bigger lead. Uh, but more important even than the national data is the swing state data. It is unbelievable. Trump is carrying the combined Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, North Carolina, Nevada, and Wisconsin, the swing states. He's carrying them combined by 48 to 43. And state by state, he's carrying Nevada by 10, North Carolina by 9. These are all states, uh, Georgia by 9, Arizona by 6, Pennsylvania by 5, Wisconsin by 4, Michigan by 4. Uh, and, and this is it, right? That, this this is it. Well, it's not it. It's this six months t- before the election. I'm saying, but Super Tuesday. Yeah, oh, yeah. Super Tuesday That's is over. I mean. Yeah. No, I'm talking about the general election. Oh, yeah, okay. His leads against Trump. Uh-huh, sure. And he's doing really, really well, hmm. incredibly well. And Trump is just falling apart. No, but Trump? I mean, but Biden, Biden is just falling apart. Mm-hmm. So one of the big things is that Biden is... Uh, is falling apart among younger voters. In fact, that used to be a real weakness for Trump, but now voters under 30 are the biggest voting block Trump has in the electorate. Is that the Z? The Z, yeah. And uh, just incredible. Uh, so of those 18 to 24, Trump has had 57 to 41. And, uh, and Trump has never been ahead among them. Uh, yet he's beating Biden by 20 points among them. And that comes from, uh, as you talked about last week, with the younger the younger generation with the COVID and all that and business. The and the lockdown. I'm convinced that that just made them hate the Democratic Party uh, because it meant they couldn't try out for football, they couldn't get date, they couldn't get married, they couldn't have kids, and they really screwed this up This was Steve lives. Wilkinson gave us this Mike little Wilkinson, yeah. Mike, I'm sorry, Mike. Uh, um, and then among Hispanics... The fourth or fifth or sixth poll in a row shows that Trump is winning Hispanics. Repeat that. Trump is winning Hispanics. Now by 46 to 45. 46 to 40. 46 to 4 row. Right. And on election day, Biden carried Hispanics by 59 to 39. Well, that's backfiring on so, the Democrats. So we've gone from losing them by 20 to winning them by 5. And why? Well... Because Hispanics know the guys who are waiting online to come in here. They've been with them. They met them in right. El Salvador, <laughs> Nicaragua, and Guatemala. Uh-huh. And they got the hell out of the country because they were there. And now they turn around and these guys are stacked up at the border. Right. And Biden's holding the door open for them. That's why. And they also see the Democrats are trying to make this country like the countries they left. That's right. And they're very expert on that because yeah. they've been through it. Hmm. Now, one of the things the poll is showing is this is a poll called by Harvard Harris. That's a polling firm doing very well, run by my former partner, Mark Penn. Mm-hmm. 
And what he did was he tested up, tested two, tested the Democratic themes against Trump and said, how will they work? So first he said that Trump will shake up America for good, or is Trump a threat to democracy? He'll shake up America, but is it for good, or is it a threat to democracy? And by 56 to 44, the voters said it's for good. So they take for granted that Trump is going to shake things up, but in a good way. And then we, he tested Democrats are trying to unfairly scare voters by saying that Trump would be a dictator. And they said that that's true, that Democrats are unfairly trying to scare voters, 62 to 38. Well, well listen, a couple of years ago when he was president, he wasn't a dictator. Yeah. Exactly. And he didn't do any of the stuff that they're saying. They're just How they come across and say that he's going to do that, and the little idiot would say, oh, yeah, oh, look at Trump, when they know he didn't do this. Well, if you have a look at the alternatives they have in the campaign, I probably would make the same decision. That's probably the best alternative they have. That's their only. And that's not because the others are bad, but because they, they said it's one that's so good is that the others are so horrible. And they don't have anything else. One thing that's interesting is they measured in this poll people that hate both Biden and Trump, that is, have a negative opinion of Biden and a negative opinion of Trump. And before Biden won those voters three to one, now we're breaking even among them. Wow. So even if you hate Trump, we got a 50% chance of getting your vote. Well, I see that people that are looking at Biden and say this guy is not doing well, they're just not going to vote, which is a vote for Trump. Well, or they'll vote for us. No, well, I'm saying, but now, the people that aren't going to vote, that's a vote for us, right? Doug and I have been focusing on the issue of Biden dropping out of the race. We're both convinced that he has to. You can't look at these numbers and stay in the race. Right. You just can't. And uh, it's a matter of time until he realizes that and the party around him realizes that. And the Harvard-Harris poll confirms that people are really getting it, that Biden is getting worse. Harvard-Harris said, is Biden getting worse as president? 48, he's getting worse. 27, he's getting better. 25, he's the same. I'd like to know these people at 27 getting better. Are the memory lapses worse or better or the same, 64 worse. So Biden is, is just sinking fast. Now, the question is, if Biden is out, who is in? And this is, I think, the most important data. Harvard Harris asked people, if Biden drops out of the race, would you like to see an open convention where the Democrats can support a new candidate, or would you like to see Kamala Harris be the candidate? And they asked this only of Democrats. And by 62 to 35, the Democrats said, we don't want Harris. We want an open convention. 62% said they do not. Do not. They want an open convention. Got it. And then we said, okay, let's say Biden is out. Who would you vote for? And this is the most important data. Mm. First time I've ever seen this data. Michelle won with 20%. This is of the Biden vote. Kamala at 15, Hillary at 12. Um, so Michelle has a significant lead among against Kamala and against Hillary and the rest of the field if Biden is out. And that's why I believe that Biden is going to withdraw and throw his support to, to uh, Michelle Obama. I think that for a couple of reasons. First of all, this poll shows it, that, that Michelle can win and the others can't. Uh, secondly, that Michelle is, of course, a black candidate, as is Kamala. And if, Kamala, if there's a perception by blacks 
that Biden is passing over Kamala to choose another candidate. That other candidate better be black. And Michelle, of course, That's is. so ridiculous. And then, of course, there's the, there's the lingering identification with Barack Obama mm. that, that really uh, animates his supporters. Oh, I'll be uh, a wink and a nod. I'll be uh, first husband. All right. But here's what I believe. Let's just say, oh, my God, i got to do the sign of the cross. She becomes president. So all of a sudden, she's president, and he's like, all right, got to get behind the desk. He goes into the Oval Office, assists behind the desk, and she comes and says, Get out of there. Get out of away from my desk. What? Well, I'm the, no, you're not. I'm the president. And make and me a sandwich why. before you leave. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I see. And all of a sudden, like if Obama hears this, he's going to go, oh, geez, that could happen. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine? I love that. Make me a sandwich. <laughs> and make me a sandwich before you get. Don't let the door hit you in the butt. <laughs> but the thing is with Biden, here's what I truly believe. First of all, he's not going to go easy. At all, because he wants to be able to pardon his son. He wants to stay president. He's just got this arrogant thing going on. As you told me, and as we talked about a lot, he's going to wait till August. Give his delegates to Michelle. She doesn't have to answer anything from now till then. He may have a problem waiting until August because he's falling apart so rapidly. I know. I mean, right now, the average poll has him behind by five or six. Uh, before it used to be two or three. Not he's going to have it was a tied. Now he's behind by five or six, but, and that's going to be very hard for him to. Uh, not for to him. Do that for the Democrats to get him out. Right. He wants to stay. He doesn't want to go anywhere. This guy wants to stay. But I think at that point, if we keep watering this down and say this is going to happen, that she's not going to have the big impact in August. Yeah. I you think know? that's very And possible. that's important. And if we keep talking about she's going to yell at Obama, get on, yeah, get uh, away from my well, desk. Maybe we consider this. He's going to go, oh, my God. Yeah, my God. <laughs> Marriage counseling at the highest level. But the only way they would reconsider this is what we're doing now. Yeah. Is really explaining it to people and laying it out there. Because make no mistake, Barack, Michelle Obama would be Barack on steroids. Yeah, right. Uh, she wrote her doctor, her master's thesis for college. On the sub, on the presumption that the only way blacks could achieve political power in the United States was for whites not to compete. <laughs> and that you needed to have blacks in a separate place with separate candidacies to promote separate power. We would call that segregation, wouldn't segregation, we? Segregation, absolutely. Uh-huh. And, uh, and, and, and someone who basically echoes the segregationist doctrine is not going to be elected president, but they can cover it up. And say, no, no, we're like Barack, healing and bringing the country together. Right. We're not divisive. We're not like Trump. And uh, they could pull it Transforming. off in the short term. And it's up to us to remember, remind people early that this might happen and and have people be prepared for it. I mean, she could she could win. If we don't get on her case now, yeah. you make her answer reparations and critical race theory and make her answer that now. Yeah. Yeah, I, I said in, in Doug's quoting it that... Uh, it's a lot harder for a black to win now than it was in 04 and 12. Mm-hmm. Because in 04 and 12, there was nobody pushing $300 billion of reparations. <laughs> there was nobody pushing critical race theory, saying that whites are evil and promote all the harm in the world. Right, teach the little kids this. Yeah, there was nobody doing that. And now there is. And now, now they have to, uh, now they have to account for that. And it's very, very hard to to sell that idea. 
That's where you come in. Yeah. So so people are going to rebel against that, mm. and makes it very hard. But to not do. the useful idiots. They yeah, don't care. There's still thirty percent of the vote. Is that what they are? Thirty, thirty-five so, at most. All right. Okay. So when we come back, we're going to talk about our old friend Hunter Biden. <laughs> Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. It's Sunday, and you know what that means. And this is the Dick Morris Show, presented by the Patriot Gold Group. Here's Dick Morris on 77 WABC. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. Stuck in the middle with Dick Morris. This, This week... There really emerged for the first time clear evidence involving sworn testimony that completely links uh, the Trump, the Biden family with all these bribes. This is the Dick Morris Show with Doug DePiro, sponsored by the Patriot Gold Group. James Biden, uh, Joe's brother, testified last week under oath that he received, that he reimbursed his brother, President Joe Biden, with $40,000 in funds that came from China, according to a transcript released on Friday in a closed-door deposition in front of the House Oversight Committee. The admission is a very important piece of evidence in the impeachment inquiry into Biden because it connects him as a beneficiary to the influence-peddling schemes being run by James and Hunter. Now, Republicans have been waiting months to get a first-hand accounting of that $40,000 that Sarah Biden, James Biden's wife, paid to Joe Biden from her husband's checking account on September 3rd, 2017. When they asked Hunter about it this week, he exploded. This is the most ridiculous thing that I mean so far. Are you saying to me, do I understand the fungibility of dollars? You're asking if, like, there's a dollar here that somehow tracked all the way down to here to repay a loan that you guys say my father made to him, and so on and so on. What does that all mean? (laughs) Yeah. Hunter admitted to writing a WhatsApp message that Republicans claim was an attempt to shake down a foreign business client with his demand for $5.1 million payment in July 17. He did the WhatsApp with his father sitting next to him, and he said now he says he was high or drunk when he sent the text. Oh, he said that now? He regrets it. Yeah. Okay. Still, House Republicans claim the CEFC, the uh, Chinese energy firm affiliate Northern Cap- Northern International Capital wired five million dollars days after that WhatsApp was sent to the Huston- Hudson West Number Three, a Hunter Biden shell company that he owned with Communist agent Wang Dong, Dong Wen Dong, Dong Dong. So, so we have Hunter uh, wiring the Chinese, saying, "I'm getting really pissed off at this delay." My father is sitting next to me. Uh, you don't want to make him angry because it would make a big grudge, and we don't get over that stuff. You better send it right away. And by right away, I mean right now. And after he sent that, 
They wired $5 million. And days later, James Biden testified. He sent $150,000 to a company called Lion Hill Group, an entity owned by James and Sarah Biden, who withdrew 50000 in cash at the end of August 17. From there came the $40,000 check to Joe Biden inside the loan repayment. So we have here absolute smoking gun proof that Hunter Biden got the Chinese to send him $5 million, and that $5 million made its way to James Biden and then was paid to Joe Biden. Um, the, uh, the question from a House investigator during James Biden's deposition was, where did you believe the source of that money was uh, prior to being sent to you, the $5 million bucks? Where was that coming from? This is going to Hunter, this question? To uh, James. To James. Oh, you're right. And James answered it was from the CEFC, a now defunct Chinese energy company with links to the Chinese Communist Party. And now it appears that that money went to them and then found its way to, to James Biden, to President Joe Biden's bank account. Hmm. Now, there's also a larger loan of $200,000 in a check given to James, to Joe Biden. Uh, and uh, it came from a hospital company, AmeriCorps, which was going broke, and James Biden served as their consultant. Uh, so the committee found $600,000 in loans to Joe Biden from the health care company. So the AmeriCare money was used to, in your words, pay back Joe Biden. Is that what you're testifying to? The investigators asked of James Biden. Yes, he answered. So he answered, yes, the AmeriCorps money was used to pay Joe, back Joe Biden. Is that what you're testifying to? Mm. Yes. The committee alleges that James Biden paid the second loan from a cut of funds he received from the Biden family business venture with CEFC, the Chinese energy company. In 2017, the international Northern International Capital, a company affiliated with CEFC China Energy, wired $5 million to a company owned by Hunter Biden, according to the committee, which he distributed to his partners, including James Biden. Mm. From there, the $40,000 loan repayment made its way through to James Biden's business, a personal account, and finally ended up as a check from his wife, Sarah Biden, to his brother, Joe Biden, according to bank records obtained by the committee. Bingo. So we absolutely have the smoking gun that we need. And uh, this is going to be fundamental. You know, months ago, maybe a year ago, people asked me about the legal problems facing Donald Trump. I said they're minimal compared to what's facing Joe Biden. Because I'd written this book, uh, Corrupt, the inside story of Biden's dark money. And I knew where all this stuff was. And and I realized that the guy who's going to be explaining this stuff during the spring as the primaries develop and the race for president matures is not Donald Trump. It's going to be Joe Biden. Mm. And the corruption issue is going to be against Joe, not against Trump. Now's the time to pick up that book. Yeah. and Really? And it's, and it's absolutely all coming true. You know, that's the second book I've written that have been has really very accurately predicted everything that's happening. The first was a book called Patriot that predicted that Trump would run, predicted that he'd win the nomination, and predicted that he'd win it almost by acclamation mm. and then win the election. And then the second book, Corrupt, the inside story of Biden's dark money, predicted that when the Biden case cracked open, 
uh, that would be the major focus of stuff, not the Trump cases. So um, I'm kind of proud of that. I'll pick up that book. There are, at the same time this is happening, there are two cases against Trump that are going away. Slip sliding away. Slip sliding away. You know the nearer your destination, the more you slip sliding away. Slip sliding away, that's for sure. The the case against Donald Trump is slip sliding away. Gradually a piece at a time. But you gotta hand it to Trump's lawyers and to his researchers who came up with the Fannie Willis stuff that's blowing one of those cases completely out of the water. So let's go down the four cases that we're talking about that could imperil Donald Trump. The first is in Georgia, and that was proceeding. Fannie Willis was the DA, and she indicted Giuliani and a whole bunch of people, including Trump, and they said they were in a RICO conspiracy to defraud the country and uh, and manipulate the outcome of the election. How dare they? And then a researcher, thank goodness, I guess who Trump hired, uh, found out that Fannie Willis, the DA, was having an affair with a guy who was her chief prosecutor, Wade, and that she was actually paying him, and that that made it, made it impossible for her to continue to serve as prosecutor. And uh, and that, that case went to trial this week. There'll be a verdict in two weeks, and the people I've spoken to say it's impossible that Fannie Willis would continue as the prosecutor. So they're going to have to name somebody else. And at best for the anti-Trump people, that's going to delay it until after the election. But most likely it'll just kill it entirely. Thanks. Because, yeah, well, the legal theory behind this case is so flawed that only Fannie Willis can believe in it. <laughs> it says that there's a RICO, a racketeering organization, right. that protected Trump. Well, to have a racketeering organization, you need racketeers and you need something illegal. Well, they have alleged racketeers, but there's nothing illegal about challenging an election result and then trying to win an election and then trying to knock your opponents out of the election. Nothing illegal about that. And there has to be an illegal act at the core of a RICO case. If you don't rob the bank, you can't get indicted. Then how did it get so far? Then how did it get so far? Because all she needed to do was to get a grand jury of her own people to convict, to indict. There's no judicial check on it. And uh, they could indict a ham sandwich, as as, um, Mm. a judge uh, in New York said. Mm -hmm. So this is a good example of that, and it is just going away. Now, the second most difficult case. But I just want to say one thing. Rudy Giuliani the greatest mayor ever in the history of the world in New York, right, should get a pass. I don't care what he does. That guy should get a pass no matter what in this world. Well, he's, he, there was what? a spring in his step today when he walked <laughs> I in. I love he's, him. He's, if he's gone to Georgia in the future, it'll be as a tourist. <laughs> I love that man. He ain't being convicted of nothing. And he's the nicest guy, nice Italian boy. Now, the other case against Trump is brought by Jack Smith, who is the uh, who is the uh, special prosecutor. And he says that Trump conspired to fix the election, essentially the same charge Fannie, Will- Fannie Willis made. Yeah. And um, his trial was supposed to be, and, and when the trial went to, when the case went to trial, Trump's lawyers came in and said, hey, wait a minute, you're, at, you're going after him for stuff he did while he was sitting as president of the United States. 
and you can't try him for stuff he did while he was president after he's left office as president. And they said the reason for that is that if you did that, every president would be paralyzed right. in office because mm-hmm. they'd be worried that on their way out of the Oval Office, they'd be hit with a subpoena and spend the rest of their lives talking about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, Smith said, no, no, it wouldn't be a big burden. It's appropriate to do that. Justice is equal and so on. And then he said to the Supreme Court, please, guys, depart from your normal routine and take this case up very, very quickly. Put it at the top of the agenda, the front burner, because we want to prosecute this before Election Day so people know who they're voting for. And the Supreme Court said, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, to look into the immunity first. Yeah, we're going to look into that right away. We're going to put it right on the front burner. (laughs) We're going to schedule the hearings for it on April 25th, like of which year? And April 25th that will be the hearings. And after that, they have to rule on the issue of immunity. And after that, if Trump wins immunity, it's all gone. If Trump loses it, they then have to prosecute and begin the preparations for a trial. And makes it very, very unlikely that this case is going to be litigated before Election Day. We're in a football game here, folks, and the, the issue is the clock. And, the clock uh, is running they're, out. They're running out the clock. Love it. And uh, the 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 argument over immunity and the argument over Fannie Willis, both of them run out the clock and stop them from any realistic. Let me ask you a question. Going against getting Trump. close to the election, they wouldn't put them before a judge close to election, would they? Well, they can try. They can, yeah, but they can. They can try, but it's going to be hard and more and more hard. Mm. Um, then there's the documents case that he didn't return library books that were overdue <laughs> and that he owed those documents to the National Archives. Now, we're not talking about, you know, the National Security Council. We're talking about the archives. And some archivists decided that it was more important that the documents sit rotting in the archives than that they sit rotting at Mar-a-Lago or in Joe Biden's garage. <clears throat> and he and therefore they're prosecuting Trump, but not Joe Biden, for not returning the documents. But the issue is not did he, did he have the documents. That he, that's okay. The issue is did he not return them. That's okay. The issue is did Trump obstruct justice in trying to block the government from finding these documents and then from returning it. And uh, that is a very far-reaching argument. And uh, the prosecutor in this, who happens to be a Trump appointee, like Judge Cannon, uh, won't be, said the case won't begin until July 8th. Uh, Trump wants it to begin August 13th. The odds are that it's going to begin very late and that it can't possibly be brought up before the election. That leaves the Bragg claim as the only one out there, the claim that uh, that uh, Donald Trump had an affair with Stormy Daniels and paid her to lie about it, which is legal, but that he paid her out of the wrong account. He paid it out of his business account as, as a lawyer, not out of his campaign account as a candidate. And they're trying to make that into a felony. And that will probably come to trial before the election. And Trump probably will be found technically guilty of it, but nobody will give a damn. It's not an important charge. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's essentially a bookkeeping error. Uh, so it looks to me like Trump has skated free on all of this stuff. Love it. When we come back, we'll talk about what happens if Hunter Biden runs out the clock. Yeah. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. 
To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It's Sunday, and you know what that means. And this is the Dick Morris Show, presented by the Patriot Gold Group. Here's Dick Morris on 77 WABC. About Donald Trump running out the clock. But Hunter Biden is trying to run out the clock, too. He's trying to avoid being prosecuted by the Justice Department for anything serious. They prosecute him now on, on this gun charge, which is ridiculous, and, um, and, and minor stuff. But they want to go after him for the core of this case, the pay- favors and the payoffs and the bribes. And uh, he's trying to run out the clock. And what's cool here is that James Comer, the chairman of the House Committee, is flipping the script and is taking what Biden is trying to do to escape what Joe did and is using it against Hunter Biden. It's terrific. He says, we're going to press him, Hunter, give him one more opportunity to come clean, and then you'll see referrals. I think Attorney General Merrick Garland is going to, or Special Counsel David Weiss, either one, We'll have the first crack at it. Bull, they're not going to do anything. Right. If they don't do it, then hopefully the next president of the United States will have a new attorney general in the Department of Justice that will hold people accountable. If we have a new president, the new attorney general, then I'm pretty confident we'll have the accountability of this family. When we have That's a new their president. Right. When. So in their depositions, both Hunter Biden and his uncle, President's brother, James, confirmed key evidence against the first family including that Joe Biden met with their business partners when he was vice president and that the first family received millions from firms in China and other foreign countries. Thomas said he did not believe that the first son and first brother gave accurate answers when it came to issues like a payment from a Kazakhstan businessman that investigators believed was used to buy Hunter Biden a luxury car, the receipt of a diamond from a Chinese businessman, and a text where Hunter Biden invoked his father in a play to pressure Chinese energy firm for millions in payments. So he's going to meet that all down the road, and that's all sitting out there waiting for him after Trump wins. So if you note a sense of desperation in the Biden candidacy, that's why. This is why he's not going to pull out of that race so easily. They yeah. have to fight him. Because he wants to control all of this. So he can pardon he, he his son. He has to. Yeah. Right. Now, um... Let's switch to the U.S. Senate race, and let me go through uh, where we stand on that. Uh, we, uh, the, all, the, we, the Republicans have a huge advantage here, and they're doing increasingly well. In fact, while Trump is taking over the uh, White House, or coming near it, the Republicans are moving closer and closer to a lock on the Senate. Um, you start with the one seat that we're guaranteed to win, which is 
which is in uh, West Virginia. Uh, Jim Justice, the uh, the governor of West Virginia, is running for the open seat vacated by Joe Manchin. So uh, that's and that's pretty much a guarantee Republican win. Uh, West Virginia is a heavily Republican state, and Justice is a very popular governor. Um, the but there are also tight races going on that are breaking for Republicans decisively. Start with Arizona. Kerry Lake has taken the lead in Arizona in the three-way race. Lake is running for the Senate, and she's opposed by Gallegos, a Democratic congressman, and Cinema, the Republican, the Democratic senator who uh, turned independent. So at the moment, the polling is Lake 37, Gallegos 32, Cinema 21. That looks like we should win that. And by the way, it confirms that Trump is up by seven in Arizona. In Montana, a third seat, there is good evidence now and real change that Trump is now ahead, that Trump is going to pick up that seat, that we're going to be able to win it. That's beautiful. Let me me tell you the story of Montana because it's fascinating and gives you a real window into what Donald Trump is like these days. Montana's senator is John Tester, who served for three terms, who's a total idiot. And uh, (laughs) I mean, I've, I've written that he's the stupidest member of the Senate. And uh, But Montana's a small state, and he knows everybody. And they have only one congressman at large, and his name is Rosendale. And he's a Republican, and he was going to run against Tester. And he did four, he did six years ago and lost. So everybody said he's not going to win this time. But he said, I'm going to run. And then Trump came up with a fantastic candidate, uh, Mike Sheehy, who is a former uh, former SEAL and Green Beret, who got the Purple Heart and the Bronze Star and so on. And uh, is just a tremendous candidate. He recently was featured in a video where he talks about his wife's decision to have an abortion and how he stood by her and how difficult the case was for the family. And she spoke about how everybody else turned away. But uh, but uh, he he came up and really helped. Now, after and as a result of that, so Trump... Everybody thought Trump would endorse Rosendale because he'd run before. But Trump said, no, I don't want Rosendale. I think he's going to lose. I want Mike Sheehy because he called him a genuine American hero. That's a quote. So <laughs> this is hysterical. Uh, Rosendale had a press conference all set to announce that he was running and that Trump would support him. And an hour or two before his press conference, Trump holds a press conference saying, I'm not endorsing uh, <laughs> Rosendale. I'm endorsing Sheehy, his Oops. opponent. He says, but I like Rosendale. He's a good guy. And if he decides to run for re-election to the House, I'll support him, but not <laughs> if he runs for Senate. So then Rosendale dropped out a few minutes later. And a few dates, minutes later. Minutes later That's literally. funny. So the, t- the timing, so Rosendale was a candidate for less than a day. And now uh, Sheehy is ahead. Sheehy is still behind uh Tester in Montana, but only 49 to 40. And I'm pretty damn sure the next poll will show Sheehy ahead and that we're going to win that seat. And you were so excited about that yeah. that you called him, what, yesterday or two Trump days ago? Said, we talked to him. What I said to Trump was funny. I said, you know, this is a move reminiscent of Lyndon Johnson yep. or Sam Rayburn, guys who knew how to play the political process right. and win. And uh, I just told him how great I thought that move was. And, and is, he told you how much he missed you. Yeah, he did. We haven't spoken in a week or two. Uh, 
And uh, this is indicative about what's going on with Donald Trump. Uh, I wrote a column saying he's shepherding his MAGA flock from purity to maturity. Yeah, that was good. That was really nice. And he's get, teaching them that you don't always have to have the pure candidate. You have to make sure you win. And you have to put everything in the context of what's really going on. Hmm. And So you uh, have the numbers of the Senate and Congress, yeah, they right? they can yeah. win that. Uh-huh. And he's really doing that. Now, at the same time that's happening, uh, Steve Daines, D-A-I-N-E-S, is the new chairman of the Republican Senate Campaign Committee. And he is doing a fabulous job of insisting that we get candidates who really can win. And uh, one of the things he's done that has been incredible is there's a seat in Maryland that came vacant in the Senate because Ben Cardin, the longtime Democratic senator, announced that he's not running for re-election. So every Republican gave up on the seat, the solid Democratic, the bluest state in the country, because Maryland didn't, never used to be blue. It used to have Baltimore and some places that we carried. But all of the federal bureaucrats live in Maryland now. It's essentially Washington, D.C., only a state, mm. and just like Northern Virginia, and the tail wags the dog here. Mm. But the governor of Maryland is a rhino, a Republican who hates Trump, in fact, was going to run against Trump in the Republican primary and dropped out, and he's not running again. But then Larry Hogan, the guy's name, announced that, hey, I'm going to run for the Senate. I'm a Republican, and I'm going to run for the Senate. And everybody said, well, you're against Trump. Uh, who, how will you do that? He said, I'm going to run for Senate, and I'll bet Trump is going to support me because he wants a Republican seat in Maryland. And sure enough, Steve Daines, the leader of the Senate Campaign Committee, got Trump to come over and put up with Hogan and hold his nose, and I think that's the seat we're going to pick up. Hogan now has a 10-point lead over each of the guys who are going to challenge him in the primary. And then another state. So we're winning in West Virginia. We're we're winning in Arizona. We're going to win in Montana, and now we're looking good in Maryland. In Nevada, there was a whole field of candidates, and they were all running – but the uh, Danes and the Republican committee came in and basically told them all to get out of the race and run clean the way for Sam Brown, who uh, was an Army captain. And um, you'll see in the videos he lost a lot of his face uh, to an Iraqi IED. And uh, he's getting the support of most people in Montana, in, in Nevada. I think that makes it a fairly possible pickup. And then Ohio... Uh, it's another state. There's a Republican primary coming up in two weeks. And the guy who I think is going to win the primary, who has Trump's endorsement, who was not winning it, but Trump endorsed him, is named Bernie Marino. Mm-hmm. Doug and I met with him for an hour or two, and we really think he's very good. Mm. And uh, it looks like Marino's going to win that primary. And whoever wins that primary, I think, is going to defeat Sherrod Brown. Sherrod Brown is the single most liberal member of the Senate. Everybody would agree with that. And he was elected back when Ohio was a swing state, and there was a viable Democratic Party in Ohio. Since then, Ohio has moved decidedly to the right, and I think Brown is going to lose. So count them up. We're going to win West Virginia. That's one. We're probably going to win Arizona. That's two. Probably win Montana. That's three. Probably win Maryland. That's four. And have a good shot. These are all turnovers? Turnovers Mm -hmm. in Nevada and in Ohio. The funniest thing is that in California, California, 
<laughs> we have a chance to win the primary. Now, it doesn't mean we're going to win the seat. They have what they call a jungle primary. Everybody from both parties runs. Right. And the top two, regardless of party, run against each other. Hmm. And uh, everybody knows that Adam Schiff, the Democrat, would be one of those two. But now For Steve, brains, Adam Schiff? Yeah. For brains? Shift <laughs> for brains. Oh, yeah. take it easy. Be careful. C-H-I-F-F? Yeah. Just be careful with that last it. letter. <laughs> and uh, but apparently the new guy, new kids come along, Steve Garvey, the Dodger pitcher. Oh. And he's nice. running as a Republican. And in the survey that was just out in California this week, he's in first freaking place with twenty seven percent of the vote. Wow. And Schiff is in second place with twenty five. Now, when you run the two of them against each other with no other candidates, Schiff pulls out to a 20-point lead. But Garvey is coming on very strong, and this is California, for God's sakes. If we make a race out of that, imagine what's going to happen in the rest of the country. Wow, Californication. Yeah, California coming. So when we get back, we're going to talk a little bit about the huge change going on in the black vote and how Trump is going after black voters in his new advertising. It's Sunday, and you know what that means. And this is the Dick Morris Show, presented by the Patriot Gold Group. Here's Dick Morris on 77 WABC. Welcome back to the Dick Morris Show with Doug DePiro, sponsored by the Patriot Gold Group. So let me read you an ad that's going on the air in... Georgia, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. The ad says, and it's black announcer, President Trump will protect our daughter's sports teams. Trump will declare war on the cartels, stop the flood of drugs and crime into our communities. President Trump delivered for us before, and he'll do it again. That is an ad that's now being run in black communities throughout the country. And it's a very, very, de- very important dad and a very good one. And it's true. That's the thing. It's true. Completely true. And, uh, and you know, the, 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 the narrative here is really good. Uh, Trump is opposing having men compete for women's sports, mm-hmm. which is not just an ego thing. It means that, that black women, uh, can't win scholarships uh, because the men beat them out all the time. And they're running in these sports so that they can win scholarships. Yeah, shock pudding, really? And that, yeah, now there's no way that they can. Huh. Uh, so, so it's a very important thing. And secondly, that the reason there are so many people in jail, or were so many people in jail, who essentially did not commit serious crimes. They are really victimless crimes. They were the girl whose boyfriend says, I want you to drive me home tonight, and I want you to pick me up and take me home. And she says, okay, I'll do that. And it turns out that he has a car full of drugs. <laughs> and he gets busted and she gets busted and she gets sent to jail for a mandatory sentence of like 32 years. And Trump has gone, Trump passed as president and signed the First Step Act, which says if it was a nonviolent crime and the person was not implicated directly in the drug trade, uh, they can apply and they can be given a walk, they can be given a, a, a commutation. And that's left thousands and thousands of innocent people out of jail. Really? really? In, the, in the thousands? In the thousands. Good. And there's a great ad that we ran last campaign 
of a woman who was whose son was freed in that way. And now we're coming back to the issue. Now, in the polling in this country, we've seen a tremendous change over the last month or two months, huge change. It always was that when you ask people, what's the major issue facing America? The major, most people said the economy or inflation or jobs or unemployment, one of those issues. No more. Now the number one issue in the Harvard-Harris poll of problems facing America is immigration at 36%, followed by inflation at 33 economy at 24 and crime at 17 So the infl- immigration issue has soared in the last month or two from an also-ran issue to the biggest issue in the country. And it's an issue where Biden has no capacity to resist it because he hasn't done anything on it. He's made it worse. Everybody knows that it was fine under Trump. But all the useful idiots said, oh, but look, he's going to the border now. He's so great. Really? Really? For four years? Well, but the important thing now is that it is a gigantic change that the economy is not the major issue. The economy is bad enough for Biden. But immigration has now risen from about the fifth issue to fourth, third, second, and now it's number one. And that's because it's driven by reality. There are 8 million asylum seekers who have been let into the country under the Biden presidency versus only 3 million under the Trump presidency, a 167% increase. More than 8 million asylum seekers and other migrants will be living in the United States in legal limbo by fall, 167% increase over five years, according to internal government projections. So... When you look at the number of illegal immigrants who are sitting there waiting for their cases to be adjudicated, you're talking about the population of more than 20 or 30 states, a vast number of people, more than New York City. Do we know the number of how many young men, like let's say 20 to 25, good shape as opposed to women and older men? That's the other point. The, The asylum claims are now mainly by young men of military age. Uh, and they're and they're people who they claim are their children. You know who Dennis told me yesterday. You know Dennis Demilly, yeah. right? Good friend of mine. He's mentioned this. I said I have to at least mention it to you. He said that he thinks in his mind. He says the Democrats want these guys to come in. So when there's a war, you know what I mean? They're the soldiers. I mean, think about this. No, kind they, of weird. They want them to come in. So when there's an election, they're the voters. Yeah, that, right. But now, and, and that's that's obviously might can happen. The it's the point is that the that the uh, these eight million asylum seekers will be living in the United States in legal limbo. So what's going on is if you want to come to America, you just say you're seeking asylum. Right. And normally asylum was used only for political purposes. There was a death threat on you in Iran. You sought asylum and you moved to the United States. Why not just stay in Mexico? Well, that's what we're saying. Right. And. Uh, but they're saying, oh, no, we want to come to America. Uh-huh. And they're entitled to be litigated. Uh, they have rights because they're asserting that. And uh, the result is that there is a vast number of people waiting to come into the country legally. 
Of course, Trump will be able to keep him out uh, because, first of all, he'll move to keep him out. He'll have enough the staff illegals, to keep the him illegals out. illegals out. Yeah. Right. And he'll close down those asylum claims. But right now, there are 8 million people waiting at the border, you know, on your mark, get set, go. Oh, God. Waiting for Biden to give them the green light mm. to come into America. And what's holding them up right now is Congress, and uh, we hope Congress continues to. But uh, 8 million people. Um, you know, a mob waiting outside of the entire population of New York City. Think about how is how is Congress holding them back? Well, Congress is saying that that the that they can be uh, that the, that they have to be litigated, that they uh, have to they have to remain in Mexico. They can't come to the United States. They're not entitled to the range of constitutional rights that people here have, and um, and and they're at the moment they're. And what they're really doing now is saying that we don't have the money to adjudicate them, so we'll keep them in holding. Ah, very good. And they're not really in holding. They're released all over the country not on good. bail, and we hope that they'll come back. Um, but the odds that they're coming back. And then they're clearing soon. out schools in New York City so they could so come they can to put people. There. Isn't that nice? That's right. That's right. So we'll talk about there's a new kid in town. And when we come back, we'll talk about a new gang in town. Sunday, and you know what that means. And this is the Dick Morris Show, presented by the Patriot Gold Group. Here's Dick Morris on 77 WABC. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. Today is National Anthem Day, or week, or month, or year, or something. And this is the Dick Morris Show with Doug DePiro, sponsored by Patriot Gold. Happy Group. National Anthem Day. Yeah. And we're talking I didn't about, even know about it. We're talking about all those people who want to come to America and how wonderful that is and how important that is. But we have to be sure that they're not people who are coming here to rob us and, and, and attack and murder our yeah. people. And, and raise the American flag, not your, your flag. You know, growing up, my Italian grandparents would not let us raise an Italian flag or speak Italian outside of the house. I mean, they were really strict. You're American now. It was really important. Mm -hmm. That's great. Is that how you ended up today? <laughs> Could you imagine? <laughs> yeah. But I speak with my hands, as you know. Yep. So I don't have to. <laughs> this is not a joke. <laughs> it's not a joke. But in immigration, there's a new kid in town. 
a new uh, group on the block uh, that is very, very dangerous. Venezuela's notorious Tren de Aragua, A-R-A-G-U-A, Tren de Aragua gang, and El Salvador's MS-13, which retired FBI Assistant Director Chris Schweiker calls prison-spawned gangs, that is, gangs that started in prison in Central America and South America and now are coming to the U.S. Schweiker, the former Assistant Director of the FBI says they're the most dangerous gangs on the planet. Latin countries are emptying their prisons deliberately. Gang leaders setting up crime rings in America come out of the muck and the slime of South American prisons. And now a migrant family who recently left New York has been arrested for killing a Georgia nursing student, Lincoln Riley. Oh, God. Jose Antonio Ibarra, 36, 26, entered the U.S. from Venezuela illegally in September of 22 and was granted parole under Biden's policies, thank you, and came to New York on a bus. While here, he was arrested once but not detained. Now he's charged with murdering Riley, who was out jogging on the University of Georgia campus. Schweiker suggests that this man did not burst spontaneously into a criminal overnight. There was someone who has committed, this is someone who has committed crimes before. Athens, the city of Athens put out an arrest warrant for Ibarra in December when he skipped a court appearance in a shoplifting case. And Athens is also a sanctuary city, and he was merely cited for shoplifting. If an immigrant is arrested in New York, the NYPD is barred from communicating with federal ICE to determine whether the immigrant should be deported, jailed, or allowed back on the street. Why? They can't even talk to him. Why? Mayor Adams said Monday that sanctuary status must be changed so that migrants who commit felonies can be picked up by ICE and deported. About time. But he's been saying that before and before, and it hasn't happened. And uh, it's a it's a serious problem, and it's not like these criminals are coming out of the blue. We know them well. We have had them in prison in the United States, and now we're releasing them. And they're coming back in and committing this kind of mayhem. So, immigrant crime is way up, and that's why immigration has become the major issue facing the country, in the opinion of voters. Law enforcement arrests nearly doubled in a year in which thousands of criminals were apprehended, including dozens of known or suspected terrorists. Listen to this. In fiscal year 2023, which ended in September, ICE enforcement arrested 180,000 illegal immigrants inside the country, and almost half of them had criminal records. These are not records of being undocumented or something. These are actual crimes. Criminal alerts had an average of four charges and convictions for each person. So 180,000 people arrested, an average of four times, 33,000 for assault, 7,200 for weapons, 1,700 for murder, and 1,600 for kidnapping. And the most pervasive crime was DUI and possession of serious drugs. 
Assault was quite common among the undocumented perpetrators arrested last year, and so were weapons offenses, sexual assault, and burglary. Thousands of the arrested migrants stole vehicles, were charged and or convicted with fraudulent activities, robbery, and property damage. More than a 1,000 committed homicide and kidnapping. So we have more than a 1,000 kidnappers or murderers who are legally in the country or illegally in the country. But we're not doing anything about getting them out. We're trying to, uh, we're letting them sit there while the cases are adjudicated. And there are 170,000 people who are here illegally who've been busted in the United States this year for committing crimes in the U.S. this year. So who did it? We have a mailing list here of criminals. We know their names, their fingerprints, their bio metrics, their photo IDs, their address, and we can't pick them up. If we pick them up, we have to release them, and they have to sit there and go into court on the date they were assigned and become citizens of the country. And, of course, most of them won't. They'll just skip, and they'll be here de facto, and there's nothing we can do about it. First of all, they, you know they don't have addresses. They came into the country. They're yes. just staying wherever they could stay. Right. And how do we know what their real name is and anything? Yeah, we don't really know anything about right. them. Right. Right. Uh, and uh, the only thing we know about them is that they're going to come in and commit additional crimes. Right. Right. So um, just a horrible situation. It's horrible. Um, you, you wonder if the Democrats, do they care? I mean, they don't see this like we see it? Why do we see it differently? Why do we see it differently? Well, they first of all, they're conditioned to think about immigration in racial terms. Oh, racial terms. So they can, they're conditioned to think that anybody who's opposed to immigration must be against, against Hispanics or against blacks. Oh, God. And that's a conditioning that's gone on for many, many years. And secondly, there's a romantic, sentimental feeling among Democrats that our parents came here as immigrants, our grandparents did, and these new people should be allowed to come in to the United States. And then there's an emotional thing that says, oh, let them in because they have no place else to go. Uh, They're victimized in their home countries, and uh, we've got to be humane and be considerate. And there's also that one world thing where open borders let everyone right. you know mix with everyone else and and they have changed the deal originally we called it immigration and we and the court said that immigration is subject to national limitations now the the courts are saying immigration is but asylum is not anybody can ask for asylum so once again they're in Mexico. How about that's their asylum? Once they're right. there, do they then need asylum in the in right. our country? Well, that's the question. Right. That's the key question. You've really hit your finger on it. So the uh, so there's a the sentimental view that these are immigrants and that we have to let them in, and they're people who are being uh, tortured and imprisoned in their home countries and can't get a fair trial there, and uh, absolutely we need to let them in. And uh, that that theory is gaining great credibility and has great range of support. In the yeah. United now States. another thing: the Democrats, the people that say, "Oh, what you just said, you just explained all of that bull," right? Aren't they looking at the crime and this poor girl that was killed and say, "Wait a second, all right, we we definitely have you know we have safety net and we want this and that to be the right thing and 
pull the people in. But when they see that, does that not bother them? Yeah. That I can't wrap my head around. Yeah. Well, they they say the left is that the right is fear mongering. Yeah, sure. That they're using racism and taking an isolated example. Yeah, talk about to that poor those, girl's mother. Those become less and less viable because they see the facts around them and they see what's going on. And they take refuge in those arguments almost by reflex mm. uh, without really thinking about it. And uh, and it's it's a terrible situation. But bear in mind that it's a retreating phenomenon, the tide's going out. Right. Because more and more people are saying, no, these are horrible think- folks. We need to keep them out of here. And you think maybe, like we were talking about the young vote, that young kids, because they haven't been indoctrinated yep. that long into this, yep. that maybe they're seeing that? And, and particularly Hispanic kids, uh, because Hispanic kids are saying, this is what I ran away from. This is what is why I'm here in the first place. And their parents are saying and it too. their parents are saying it too. Mm. And uh, the Democrats thought that by advocating open borders and immigration – it was a no-brainer that they get the Hispanic vote. Sure. Because they're Hispanics, Latinos, and they want more Latinos and Hispanics in the U.S. But Trump came back and said, no, these are the reason you left. Right. These are the reason you left the Dominican Republic. What do you got to lose? <laughs> yeah. Uh, this, the, this is the reason you left. And if you let them in, you're going to make the exact same mistake here mm. that was made in your old countries. And you know how this works out. You know how what comes of this. So stop them at the border and stop them from coming in. Uh, very, very clear. Let's go to um, let's go to Tony in Clifton. Hey, Tony. Hi, Tony. That's a woman. Hi, this is a great Hi, conversation today. And and Dick, I love your your conversation about the shepherding of President Trump. This shepherding image. Yes, so shepherding is MAGA flock from purity to um, maturity. That is yeah. great. So when I think of that, and I'll make it quick, but today's my birthday, so give me a Happy birthday. Happy birthday. So when I think of um, the moral myopia in our country, mm. I was reading about Alexander Hamilton, and that topic came up in a book I was reading, and I love it. Because what, what John Laura wanted to do with the trials, we'll just look at that for a minute, is just show that our, our system is morally corrupt and what we've seen with Fannie Willis and all the other cases is this moral uh, myopia in our country, and that has affected President Trump, and it's affecting all of us in our leadership. And the other thing is, I think, when you think of the polls about the young people, the polls also showed, Dick, that the young people were disengaging from the political news spectrum, maybe like nine points from last year. And this is really a sign that they're they're not really interested in the rhetoric that they're hearing. And what they're concerned about, I believe the poll showed, was their education, their, 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 their earning a living. And President Trump is really able to present a unique opportunity that our, and in his shepherding, that our young people, if they trust him with their education and with their American dream potential, yep. which is really their, our, their, our inheritance, yep. and if they can trust him with that, then yeah. he can also, when he's gone, leave us with a new generation that knows about our country and our principles. Right. And I think it's a unique opportunity. Great, Tony, and happy birthday. Appreciate you. And happy birthday, your Tony. Your, and your words. Uh, let's bear in mind that the, that the younger generation, the Z or the millennial generation, 
has had their childhood taken away from them by COVID and by the government. The government said, no, you can't go to school, you can't go to church, you can't go out for teams, right. you can't date that girl or that guy, you can't get married, you can't have kids, you have to stay at home, locked down because of this disease. Wait, I can't date Roxana? <laughs> <laughs> and because of this disease. And there was there was a, uh, a lockdown throughout the country. And the lockdown proved to be totally unnecessary. Uh, all the people who got this disease were over 65 or at least over 50. And it represented no threat to young people. And yet their lives were fundamentally screwed up because of it. So they're not only seeing their long-term future as compromised because of the lousy economy. They're seeing their, their immediate future compromised because of immigration, because of, because of uh, COVID and what's that, that's doing to them. And it's in the face. It's in yeah. the face right now. It's not like some obscure point that people are making. You're seeing it. So when we come back, we're going to talk about major change in the abortion issue that everybody figures will be a huge issue coming up in 24. It's Sunday, and you know what that means. And this is the Dick Morris Show, presented by the Patriot Gold Group. Here's Dick Morris on 77 WABC. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. So what state do you live? This is Dick Morris on the... Uh, Doug DePiro show, <laughs> sponsored by Patriot Gold. It's an honor, Dick Morris. So where do you live? Do you live in New Jersey? That is the single worst state in the country for taxation. Really? Tax Foundation just released its data. New Jersey is number one. I would think Westchester, New York, where I'm from. Or do you live in New York? New York is number two, 49th. I would say Washington, what? D.C. is number three, 48th. Connecticut, number four, 47. Massachusetts, number five, 46. Are these so, all Repub- uh, Democrat uh, yeah, run? Yeah, absolutely. Sure. And that's New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, and Massachusetts. Mm. The entire region we live in has been completely taken over by high tax policies. Now, when the business is considering opening here, they face a gauntlet of taxation, and they have to be kind of nuts to operate here. And restrictions. And you've seen after the, the Trump verdict how scores of businesses are saying we've had it. It's enough. We're not going to wait till they come for us. Right. And we're out of here. And uh, it's, it's very clear now that the statistics are very compelling, that there is a vast preponderance of taxation in that area, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and Massachusetts. Uh, let's go to um, Pamela in New Jersey. Um, I, I understand what you're saying about the strategy of picking rhinos to back yeah. because it's our only chance. I, under- yeah. I understand that. And I was kind of shocked. I have ties to Tennessee, and I was shocked to see Marsha Blackburn praising Hogan. And I called her up and I said, do you understand? He's a rhino. And yeah. I remember a year and a half ago when he was con- uh, conniving with Biden and yeah. being really harsh. Right. So Marsha Blackburn saying, is very good, though. But right. But in the end, they're going to they're going to vote like rhinos. Yep. I know to take over the Senate. I get it. But we're having that problem right now with Sapricone in uh, New York State. 
Do you know about that? Peter King told him to get out because he gave money to Letitia James. And all of a sudden we hear over the weekend that Trump ba- is backing him. Hmm. So is that is that part of that strategy yeah. you're talking about? Because I don't I, know. I didn't, I, I, don't... I didn't know about the rest of that story. But, uh, yeah, look, the Trump in 22 was clearly opposed to anybody who was not for him and was not part of his movement, part of MAGA. Uh, but that was too restrictive, and he ended up losing a lot of seats that he needed to win. And I believe that if we can steal a seat, if we can pick up Larry Hogan and get elected in in Maryland, where there is no Republican Party and there is no chance for Republicans to win, that is incredible, and we should absolutely seize it. It's tremendous that we have that opportunity, and we got to pounce on it right away. So I know what you're saying, and I know that's going to come back to haunt us. I know that but there's the future, no alternative. Is that that's page the is bad. I know right. in the future we can say, my, "My God, can we pick up Lisa Murkowski in Alaska? Can we pick up Susan Collins in Maine?" <laughs> and now we'll say, "My God, can we pick up Larry Hogan?" In yeah, Maryland? right. And the answer will be probably not. Possibly yes. We'll negotiate. We have to give them something. We have to see what the deal is. But that is a lot better. And having a Democrat who won't talk to you is definitely going to vote against you and is going to cast the first vote of a Senate career for the Democrats to give them control of the Senate. Mm. Look at what they're doing with control. If the Democrats get control of the Senate, the first thing they're going to do is end free elections in the United States. They're going to pass S-1, Senate 1, which says the, the, the terms of how the elections are conducted – shall be decided by the federal government, not by the state government, and requires mail-in voting. It bans the use of photo identification. It bans a signature verification by more than one person. It calls all of these things racist and suppressing turnout. And the first vote they're going to cast will be the last vote any of us cast. And we have got to be sure that the Democrats don't control the Senate. And you've got to give Trump control. And uh, if, if holding your nose and backing Larry Hogan is the price we got to pay, well, that's the price we got to pay. Now, there's been big change this week on abortion. Uh, the Democrats have seized on abortion and said that this is the issue that can bring them back from the dead. <laughs> no pun. <laughs> and that's uh, not nice. And they uh, and they they're really working hard at that. And the big issue was <clears throat> that. The Supreme Court said Roe v. Wade is reversed, and now every state can do whatever it wants on abortion. There's no federal control. There used to be a federal requirement that you allow abortion under Roe v. Wade, and now that is no longer enforced. The state can do whatever it wants about it. And a lot of conservatives like uh, like DeSantis pounced on that, and said, okay, we're going to limit no abortions after six weeks when the fetal heartbeat can be detected. Sure. And uh, most people don't even know they're pregnant after six weeks, and they certainly aren't able to make a life-changing decision like to have a child or not uh, as the clock is ticking here. So it looks now that Trump will back a 15-week or even a 16-week exception on abortion except where cases of rape, incest, or the life of the mother are involved. And that, I think, will end the abortion issue. For him. End it. It'll absolutely pull the, the, the stopper out, and the air is going to come out of the balloon. 
uh, because now every woman in the United States will know that she can have an abortion if she wants it, as long as she does it in the first trimester, which is not an onerous obligation. Everybody who's pregnant knows they're pregnant by the end of the first trimester, and they'll have they'll have a long time to decide what they're going to do, mm. and they can do it. And that is a common-sense ruling. It won't appease the strong pro-lifers who say that any abortion is murder, and I understand that, mm-hmm. and I sympathize with them, but, you know, come on, we don't have that kind of majority. We don't have that kind of unbelievable support, and uh, we've got we've got to uh, act in a compromise that where we can get everybody on board. And 15 weeks is absolutely it, and uh, that's what Trump is probably going to say. Now, he hasn't said it yet because the primaries are going on, and he didn't want to give uh, Haley or DeSantis that issue. Right. Uh, but as soon as the 15th, as soon as Super Tuesday passes, I think Trump is going to come out for 15 weeks. Now, the Democrats will still say, oh, well, what about, what about, what about yeah, right. somebody that didn't think they were pregnant or right. thought they were and is in the wrong state and they couldn't get it together and mm-hmm. move and blah, 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 blah. And Trump is going to come back and say, look, if their life is at stake or they couldn't or that they have to make a decision because of that or they've been raped or they're victims of incest, okay. But otherwise, you got to decide within 15 weeks, the first trimester, it'll probably be 16. And that is not onerous. And I think that is going to kill the abortion issue and stop the issue from haunting the Republican Party. You know, and and they're just asking and want to hear what Trump has to say. But he pushed it to the states. Yeah. From the Fed to the states, yeah. right? And so Trump is going to oppose <laughs> any federal legislation that requires that the states do something. Right. Uh, but the uh, but it's so it important. kind of pushes the issue away from him. It does takes it away from it him completely. Pu- puts it on the state. And I think that the that that has been, but that's the key move he has to make to win the elections in twenty four, uh, to get abortion off the table, so that there is no question that Trump will Trump will clearly not support legislation that requires the right to abortion in less than fifteen weeks of pregnancy. So the DeSantis proposal that when a heartbeat's detected, you can't do anything, that is going to be dead. And that has to die for Trump to be able to live in this election. Now, in one stroke, this completely pulls the rug out from under the entire Democratic Party. And their whole campaign strategy for winning this election goes completely out the window. I remember when, you know, I'm a Vietnam-era person. And uh, when 1967... Uh, I had my draft physical, and I was classified 4F, thank God. Uh, if I was 1A, I think I may have gone to Canada. I, I say that now, but I think I would have. But the point is that the is that we, un, at that point, we all understood that the a draft and Vietnam was a compelling issue because we might personally each be drafted. And that's how women feel about abortion. They personally might need an abortion, and they don't want to be hassled as to whether it's uh, there's a fetal heartbeat or not. If they move in the first trimester, they want to be free to have an abortion, and uh, I think that that's that that's the that that's the key thing. And uh, Trump understands that, and he understands that once you pull the air out of that issue, like they did with Vietnam, when they told me you're not going to be drafted, we're taking away the draft. This is now just an issue for you, like 
any other issue. And once they did that, it stopped being a cutting-edge issue. The, the basic big emotion was gone. Everybody forgot about it, and they moved ahead with their lives. Mm-hmm. That's what's I think, going to happen with abortion. Uh, but Trump is showing considerable political courage in risking a backlash from his own base by doing this, and political wisdom and maturity by waiting until the uh, primaries were over. And believe me, that was not always easy to make sure would happen. And I know someone that helped him figure that out. Yeah, well, yeah, you got that right. Mm-hmm. Okay, now, when we come back, we're not going yet. There's been a major change in polling that came out this week that really changes everything. <clears throat> there's, an inter- there's an international company based in Chicago that measures how people feel about global and foreign issues. And they've taken the poll every year for 50 years. And so they're, they're, it's, it's, it's something that's very important and very worthwhile. And they have found a huge change among Republicans. They didn't, in this polling they did this time, they took people who have a favorable opinion of Trump, a very favorable opinion of Trump, the real Trumpers, and asked them how they feel about global issues. And then at the same time, they asked people who had only a moderately favorable opinion of Trump or even an unfavorable opinion. And Evo Dalger, the former U.S. ambassador to NATO under Obama, said the council's annual polls are discovering two important trends. One change is that the Republicans have increasingly, since about 2016, become more skeptical about the U.S. playing an active role in world affairs and more favorable for staying out of world affairs. We've been asking the same question for 50 years, and the changes we're seeing are enormous. Something bigger happened in the survey last year, which is for the first time since we started asking this question, more Republicans wanted to stay out of the world affairs than play an active role. Isolationist? Yeah, that's (laughs) never happened before. It's a spectacular change over the decade or so. Republicans are being more isolationist vis-a-vis Democrats. And all of a sudden, this major shift in the party on the question of whether to stay involved or not, and that major shift can really be explained by one part of the Republican Party, and that is the pro-Trump MAGA Republicans are leading the charge. He found that among the MAGA global skepticism, we're calling it, ran deep among MAGA Republicans. Only 40% of MAGA voters want the U.S. to play an active role in world affairs, while 59% preferred that we stay out of world affairs and focus instead on domestic issues. Isolationism, the extreme form of global skepticism, is a potent form, potent force in our political history. It's never been defeated in an election. It fell into disrepute after Pearl Harbor and during Stalin's conquest of Eastern Europe. The Republican Party split to its core in 1952 when internationalists led by Eisenhower defeated Ohio Senator Robert Taft at the National Convention, and that led to the U.S. joining the U.N. and joining NATO. But now, clothed in MAGA garb, the global skeptics are increasingly dominating the modern Republican Party. They're being driven by doubts about the wisdom of emptying our national treasury and denuding our stockpiles of weapons to help Ukraine. But the deeper roots that tap into anti-American globalism and the worldview 
Start with climate change, in my view. 72% of Trump Republicans say the U.S. is paying too much attention to climate change, while 16% say we're paying too little attention, and 12% we have the balance about right. So because they see the left going crazy over climate change and turning our entire economy over to that issue Mm. and stopping us from getting cars that people can drive and stopping getting us cars that you work off internal combustion engines and forcing us to rely on unreliable power grid, they're understanding that this is going just too far. And it's moving voters to the right, not just on this issue, but on any other issue. On the other hand, the the poll showed a strong willingness, indeed an eagerness, among Trump Republicans to assume an active role in policing the border, competing with China, and stopping Iran's nuclear program. For those three things, they're willing to be internationalists. 91% of Trump Republicans said, we're not paying enough attention to our border. And 61% were not paying enough attention to Iran's nuclear program. This sounds like people are starting to think about 4% were not focused enough in China. Using their brains. They are. But the global skeptic movement, which I'm calling it, has gathered momentum Mm -hmm. among the outsiders that are propelling MAGA into the White House. It'll be hard to thwart it, although the world's globalists are going to try. Climate change seems to be the gateway to global skepticism. MAGA Republicans rightly refuse to orient our entire economy and energy issue around the single issue of climate change. Mm-hmm. Europeans are scared to death of this new global skepticism. American distrust of ca- European cafe society and global, global and society globalism runs deep and is exacerbated by the left's dogmatic and rigid positions on environmental issues. As Trump runs for president and nears the White House, he'll add recruits to MAGA and will elaborate his views on global issues. Watch out for global skepticism as a fast-growing movement in the United States, and Donald Trump is bringing it to the fore. That's the kind of tectonic change that you need to pay attention to in the polling. It's not a horse race situation. It's a situation of a fundamental change in the attitude of Americans, and that is going to influence all policy from now on. At the moment, it's being seen through the prism of aid to Ukraine, but it needs to go beyond that prism. Because the whole premise of globalism, the whole premise of one world and we all have to be in this together and one policy has to fit all, fit all is, is moving away. We're losing that perspective, thank goodness. And uh, Trump is leading that effort. And this is the first polling that really mirrors this and really figures out that this is happening. And it's conducted by a Trump, by an uh, Obama guy who um, served in the uh, Obama administration. And it really highlights, I think, a major change that's going on. I, I'm starting to get a little hope for people that are starting to think. Yeah, they are. Right? It's not they just are. the running you know, lem- lemmings yep. jumping off a cliff. Let's go to Gary in Staten Island. we got a minute left, Dick. Hey, Gary. Monsieur Macron, the leader of France, he uh, last week says he wants to put NATO troops in <laughs> Ukraine i.e. start World War III. Yeah. Well, that's not this happening. This is and exactly what we're talking yeah. about. Mm-hmm. You, you're completely right. Um, you know, France can't be trusted on this issue because they 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 have such a, a momentum for intervention. Uh, they think it's the honor of the country. They conjure visions of the French Foreign Legion. 
I remember during the Clinton years when we were getting it together to bomb Serbia over Kosovo, um, the French said, don't bomb, send in troops. It's more honorable. Hmm. And uh, I said, come on, honorable. We, we want to do something and get reelected. And uh, we did, but pragmatism won out over that. Thanks for calling, Gary. Good perspective. When we come back, we're going to be joined by Betsy Hogan, who McCullough. was the – Betsy – not Hogan. McCullough. Betsy McAuliffe. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm marrying you to Larry Hogan. <laughs> I'm sure she's not happy about that. Betsy McAuliffe, who was lieutenant governor of New York. I bet. And writes a column in the New York Post and on Newsmax that is very perspective, perceptive and very important. She's brilliant. And she has brilliant perspectives on immigration. So when we come back, Betsy McLaughlin. McAuliffe. Uh, Betsy McAuliffe. Now you've been with John McLaughlin. Excuse me. I'm marrying you off to everybody. (laughs) Poor Betsy. She got a nice husband. Leave her alone. It's Sunday, and you know what that means. And this is the Dick Morris Show, presented by the Patriot Gold Group. Here's Dick Morris on 77 WABC. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. Hi, Betsy. Betsy McCoy. Hello, Dick. Hey. Hi, Betsy. Betsy is the former lieutenant governor of New York and a uh, world expert on health care. And uh, normally I listen to what you say about health care avidly. But the other day I was looking through your column and you were talking about the new gangs that are coming to New York. And that unlike other gangs, these are gangs that incubated in prison in Central and South America. So they're, they're in fact... In El Salvador, there used to be a gang, it still is MS-13, where the leader was, I think, 16 years old, or now he's 20 or something, and he happily lives in prison, and he happily has a cell phone and gets whatever drugs and women and alcohol he needs. Oh, isn't that nice? And he runs his operation from a jail cell, and he's the boss of the El Salvador crime family. And um, I was working in a presidential race in El Salvador, I said, for God's sakes, come out for the death penalty. You can't hold these people in prison and expect that you can really punish them. Uh, but they wouldn't do that. But instead, they hit on a better solution, import them to the United States. <laughs> and now we have Venezuelan gangs running our streets. Horrible. Hi, Betsy. Well, I'm so glad you've introduced this topic because it's so important to people who live in New York, but also Chicago, Los Angeles. In other cities, these gangs, the Venezuelan gang, Tren de Aragua, which means the train gang, and, of course, El Salvador's notorious MS-13 um, gang, are both now well-established in our cities. According to the FBI, they said the other day that these gang members now go to the bus stops where the migrants are coming north. They meet the buses at the stations and recruit young new members to the gangs. They also go directly into the migrant shelters and recruit young people to join these gangs. So they're getting bigger and bigger. And that explains, for example, the young man who was arrested uh, for uh, shooting a, a, a Brazilian shopper in Times Square two weeks ago. He was 15 years ago, years old. Sorry, He had a 45 caliber gun with him, and he explains to the cops that he lived with his mother in a shelter on West 70th Street, goes to school during the day, and robs stores at night. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's what he does. 
He robbed stores at night uh, under the tutelage of these gangs. And these gangs are also driving the young people out to the malls in the suburbs, Macy's in Nassau County, Macy's in Oakbrook, <laughs> Illinois, and arming them. These, these kids have guns on them, and they go into the stores and take all the expensive items out of the stores, pack them in the cars, and come back to the cities. This is happening in our cities right now. Horrible. And they're trained to be criminals by these gangs. Uh, These are not kids that come to the United States and get attracted by our consumer goods and say, hey, wow, I want the good life. I think I'm going to rob a store and take up a life like that. These are kids who really are being trained and tutored in crime. They carry machetes and knives. They dismember their victims. Oh, God. I, you know, Salvador, they're scared to death of these. Out on Long Island, a, a, a human head and a human leg were found in a in a park in Nassau County. Really? We're talking about vicious gangs that dismember their victims. And I, I don't think that, that people living in our cities and suburbs can be overly concerned about this. I'm very All concerned right. about it because the left-wing politicians are denying it's happening. Why do you think they do that? I don't understand that. Oh, I'd like to explain why. Because the Democratic politicians want the surge of migrants. They want it because these migrants are counted in the census. So when you have districts in New York, for example, that are bleeding taxpayers and businesses, businesses and taxpayers are leaving, right? If Mm. the population gets smaller, that congressman, that that local politician is out of a district, out of a job. So they want to pack those districts with migrants so they keep up the count in the census. That's why New York, Chicago, Los Angeles want the migrants to come in. Now, Trump, I believe, as president, refused to count illegal immigrants in the census. That's right. It went all the way to the Supreme Court, which declined to rule on the issue because Trump was about to leave office, and they said the Mm. case isn't ripe. But it will go back to the Supreme Court. It is being challenged now. Why should we count people in the census towards apportionment when they shouldn't be in the country to begin with? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, the Constitution provides that the census has to measure inhabitants. Is the issue whether they're inhabitants or not? That's right. That's exactly the issue. Do they deserve representation? Right. That's fascinating. And by if we simply exclude them, which, you, which the president can do, uh, by, it'll be tried in court, but he can make an executive order. Yes, uh, that's exactly what he did when Wilbur Ross was head of the Commerce mm-hmm. Department. The U.S. Census is under the Commerce Department. That thing went all the way up through the courts, and then, unfortunately, at the last minute, it was not decided, but it will be decided eventually. And you would know Wilbur Ross, Betsy? I do know him, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that uh, that is fascinating. But look, the political thing that I was talking about earlier in the show is that in every poll we begin by asking what are the major issues facing the country in your judgment. And uh, the issue is always some variant of the economy. Drugs, crime, something like drugs or – not drugs and crime. crime, Economy, jobs, inflation, and that stuff. And now for the first time this week – a poll has been published by Harvard Harris 
that shows the number one issue is immigration. And uh, that overcomes even the economy. Uh, 36% cited immigration, 33% cited some variant of the inflation and the economy. And uh, that's the first time that immigration has topped the charts. And uh, it shows that there's an increasing focus on it. And it shows that the illegal immigration is seeping through the border states. And seeping into the heartland of the country. People are not listening to the left when the left says there's no correlation between illegal immigration and crime. You know, that may have been true in previous waves of immigration, but it's different now, Dick, because now it is the prisons and the mental institutions being deliberately emptied out. Migration is being used as a weapon, as a weapon by these countries against the United States. And so now we see a very high correlation. If you're in New York, for example, it is not safe to walk near the curb because thousands, tens of thousands of migrants have these mopeds now, and they go out in teams and grab people who are near the curb, grab their purses, grab their cell phones, grab their wallets. <laughs> Could be a job, but not yourself. Down the street. And so uh, this kind of crime is so rampant that – Really, I can tell you, if visitors come to New York, they will be frightened at what they see. Oh, please try that on me, please. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Boy, that is incredible. You know, I cast my mind back to uh, my Clinton days when uh, the big issue was the Mariel boat lift, Mm -hmm. where Castro took advantage of the open door the United States offered and emptied his prisons and mental hospitals. That was Jimmy Carter, wasn't it? A Carter, yes. Carter. And uh, Carter permitted it, and Clinton allowed them to be in Arkansas. As a result of that, he was defeated. And and Reagan made him turn their boats around when Reagan was – I remember that. Another big impact, another big impact that people are just starting to wake up to is the impact on our public schools Mm. because so many – Young people now are being enrolled in these classes. They arrive in class not speaking a word of English, and many have never been in school before. So, of course, one issue is that the teacher, say, in a fifth grade, has to focus all her attention on the two or three kids in the class who are so needy, Mm. and it's almost a lost year for everyone else. But second, I've been looking at the data, and until the 1980s, we insisted that when people arrived in public school, they were immersed in English. That was the language spoken, right? right? But now, more and more of our classes are bilingual. You have a teacher and a teacher's aide delivering lessons in two or more languages. And we have seen a very dramatic drop in reading and math scores across the board in the United States as these classrooms have become multilingual because Uh, And we see it, by the way, in Europe, too. Uh, Several studies have shown that when a class is multilingual, kids learn less. It's linguistic chaos. Mm. And and it it creates the European model of immigration, which is so different from the American. The American model is the melting pot. You come in and we Mm. melt you down and you become one. But the European thing is we don't do that. We keep you as separate nationalities separate religions, usually in separate residences and ghettos and neighborhoods. And uh, we make a melange, they called it, uh, mm. kind of a, a, a salad of these different nationalities. There's no idea of e pluribus unum about it. Many you know, one. this is just a disservice to Spanish-speaking people. I had somebody, I was working on a job, Barbara Winston's house, as a matter of fact. 
And this guy was a great painter. You know, I'm an artist doing her stuff, right? And I couldn't hire I want this guy. He was an older guy, and I couldn't hire him because I couldn't speak to him. Got him a book, Spanish, English. Didn't work. So it was a disservice to these people. Yeah. Well, it's not only a disservice to the migrants who are coming in, but to all the other kids. When we see the rapid decline in learning, it's time for the United States to reassess whether they're going to offer multilingual classes in, uh, across the board in these mm. public schools, as opposed to immersion English. Right. That's the way it used to be. It was very successful. And we now have all the data to show that kids who are in multilingual classes learn less. So why do we continue to do this? You actually can hear an ad. If you get into a cab in New York City, the city government is paying for a taxi ad bragging about how many languages are spoken in the public schools in New York and telling you that you have a right to have your language of instruction in school. That's a terrible message. Oh, my. Have you seen any polling on that? I haven't seen polling on yeah, what people think I, about I, it, but I, I have I seen wonder. the evidence that it's hurting Learning. Yeah, I wonder how Latinos feel about it. I, the left would assume that they would be for that, and that they would treat English only as a right-wing, crazy, mm. hot-button cause. But it's not. It's but definitely it's, not. It, 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 it's dooming these kids to failure. Absolutely. Not only dooming them, but dooming the other kids in the class, too. Right. Slowing them down. So right. exactly. one of the things I'm taking from this conversation, Betsy, which is why I always love talking to you, even if I mispronounce your last name. McCoy. She is, okay, she's the real McCoy. <laughs> like the real McCoy. Real McCoy. Uh-huh. Um, is that, like immigration, uh, limitless immigration, open borders, the left assumed that if you're for that, you're going to win the Latino vote, mm. that that's what they want. And it's becoming increasingly clear that it's not what they want. They didn't no. risk their lives to come to the United States to have these dregs follow them and turn America into a new El Salvador. Into the country they the left. Dominican Republic or Cuba mm. or Nicaragua or Venezuela. And they're conscious so of like this. It. And they're far more conscious of this than someone who've not, who had not been subject to that experience. And now you're adding to that list in my mind, Betsy, the issue of education, the issue mm. of lingual education. And uh, I think that that uh, – has Trump spoken about that? No, I haven't heard him speak about it, but I think he should. I'm going to be writing about it because it is so urgently important mm. for parents who have come here and want only the best for their kids. And if you ask those parents, do you want your child to speak English, of course they would say yes. Yeah. Um, I think well, I the, might the, talk to him about it. The second generation – I find Hispanics, the kids are learning their English, and it, but it has to go to the second generation, not the people coming in. I want to give in. you an, a, an anecdote, that a personal experience. First day of class this year, first day of school in the fall, I wanted to see what's happening. So I went out to a very nice-looking elementary school in Port Chester, New York. Mm-hmm. And I stood outside with the mothers, hoping people would think I was still young enough to be a mother. <laughs> I stood outside with the mothers, waiting for the kids to come out of school. And I wanted to talk with the mothers. Uh, only one mother in the group, there were about 25 mothers standing out on the lawn. I only found one who spoke English. Mm. Think about mm. that. I mm. only found one who wow. spoke English. Wow. Yeah. Right? But and- I got some help to speak to the others. And um, I met one woman who told me she had gone to the same 
public elementary school herself. Now she was in her 30s. She was waiting for her kids to come out. She still didn't speak English. Wow. That is the definition of failure. Mm-hmm. Porchester's mm-hmm. big Hispanic area. Boy, that That's is right. fantastic. But a second, she had grown up, gone to that school, grew up as a mother, and she still doesn't speak English. And I think that's a cruel hoax on her. Absolutely. It sure is. And theoretically, we're doing this in in a in their interest uh, because we're trying to give them an education even before they can speak English. The advocates of bilingualism say, why should they not learn math because they can't speak English? Uh, why should they not learn history because they can't speak right. English? They could learn how to speak English in a few weeks with these right. young kids. That's right. right. That's all they were being taught. Absolutely. Immersion English. That's Absolutely. right. Absolutely. Precisely right. And and by the way, Betsy, you should go to my cousin's restaurant, T and J in Portchester. It's great. <laughs> I'd be happy to do that. <laughs> great Italian so restaurant. Betsy, what do you think of the enormous shift going on in the country in voting for Trump? Well, I, I'm not surprised, as you know, I've been an ardent uh, su- supporter and fan of Donald Trump from the beginning, oh, sure. and I'm thrilled to see that the Republican Party has become the party of the people again. Well, the other thing that's fascinating is it's become the young party. The Democrats have become the, the old party. party. Right. Absolutely. The younger a voter is, the more likely he or and she is to be a Republican. Party. What? And the working person yeah, party. Right. That's true. That's true. But, but uh, demographically, when you look at every group in the country by age, the single group in which Trump does the best vis-a-vis Biden is under 25. That's amazing. That great? And he lost them by 30 points last time. Amazing. Uh, it, it just is a sea change, and it's not just for this election. It's for the foreseeable future uh, because we're dealing with young people, and this is, is something that's going to grow and going to continue. You know, they're starting right. to think like and evaluate. They want to get the young people because they'll stick with the brand forever. Yep. Right. So the, there are two stats that just drive me completely crazy. The first is that we are carrying, carrying, winning, getting more votes among Latinos than Biden is by 46 to 40. Love it. We're carrying it. We used to talk about, oh, can we get 20 percent? Can we get 25 percent? Well, screw all that. We can get 46 percent, which is what we're getting now. And so that the Latinos have become a Republican group and young people have become a Republican group. Blacks are less Democrat than they used to be. But young people and Latinos are now Democratic voters. And That's really wonderful. I also suspect that when Trump takes this position on abortion and embraces the 15-week solution, uh, I think the number of single women who support him will probably increase. What I do you think, so. Betsy? Well, I hope so. And I also think that uh, Jewish voters uh, should be for Trump because when I see how Joseph Joe Biden has betrayed Israel. Yeah. Pardon me? Absolutely. Well, I mean, what's what's it's what's a, a candidate got to do? It's a small electorate yeah. overall, but in certain parts of the United States, very influential, New York being one yeah. of them. And, and, and by the way, it, I just saw in the corner of your eye that Steve Garvey, the Republican candidate for Senate, uh, is winning in California. That's well, thank wonderful. you, Betsy. Thank you, Betsy. I loved having you on. Very informative. I hear the music. So glad to join okay. you, Dick. America Bye-bye. the Beautiful. Take care. Thank you, Betsy. And it's an honor, Dick Morris, to be here with you. In liberating strife. Who more than self? Yeah.
Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com. 